It has been a minute since I've done a podcast. And uh, hello, and welcome to a long overdue episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Um, our guest today is Charles Clay, and this is an incredible episode. Uh, it really helped me remember how much I'm depriving myself when I don't let myself do things like this. So the podcast is back. We're going to get back to recording episodes, and I appreciate all of your patience. I've had quite a few people reach out to me through all the many channels that now exist, God forbid, uh, asking about what's going on with the podcast. Where are you? And I get a little bit into it on the podcast, but I wanted to take a little time in this intro to catch you guys up with what's been going on in my life. Um, I should have checked when the last time it was that I did an episode, but it's been months and um, a lot's been going on. I think the last episode that I did was before I went to Greece. Uh, that's Graham in the background. This is my right-hand man, the producer of the podcast. Uh, I don't remember when I went to Greece, but I remember that um, it was about maybe like five or six months ago. And then uh, once I got back from Greece, uh, I had like a week off and then we did Arcadia. And July 7th was the last release. So yeah, that was around the time that I went to Greece. Um, uh, for people who don't know, uh, I work for uh, Fit for Service. And we did a event called Arcadia, which was our version of a music festival. And um, it was awesome. It was a lot of work. It was very taxing. And uh, then I like took like three weeks to like recover so that I could prepare to go to Burning Man. And then I went to Burning Man and uh, got engaged for you and y'all who don't know. And since getting back from Burning Man, I can feel, you know, it was my first time having gone. And in hindsight, I can see pretty clearly now that I was able to make contact with a part of me at Burning Man that was um, radically and primally alive, who wasn't trying to self-medicate through workaholism. And that since I had activated that part and I knew what it felt like to be in that space, uh, when I got back for like eight weeks, I couldn't click back in to my old patterns because my old patterns were uh, the function of, if I'm being honest, workaholism, where I had like honed my body to shut the fuck up so that I could sit down at a desk and work uh, with tremendous focus, you know, for like eight hours a day. And for people who are honest with themselves, uh, eight hours of actual work where you're not um, bullshitting yourself is incredibly taxing. And then I wouldn't go take care of my body. And then I would order food. And then I would sit down and I would veg out while I watched what I thought was educational stuff, but it was actually still so that I could be justifying my workaholism. Because the way that I would relax would be watching podcasts or lectures. 
And if I did watch a movie, it was always from the lens of a psychoanalyst who was trying to interpret the dreams of the collective unconscious as movies being a representation of myths. So just not relaxing. And uh, we recently did the Fit for Service Sedona retreat. And um, that was about three or four weeks ago now. And it was truly incredible. And after we completed, you know, like after I completed my role as a coach on the last day, me and the coaches did a Temescal with one of the most legit medicine women I've ever met in my life. Um, she had earned a Chinupa, which is the tobacco peace pipe. And that in order for her to having, in order for her to earn it, she had to commit to a four-year initiatory container where each year she would have to do a vision quest with uh, no food, no water. And the first year was four days out in a mountain in Argentina, no food, no water. And then year two, um, I believe, was a week long. And on the fourth day, she was brought a little bit of water and a little bit of food but the water was Wachuma. And so uh, she would get that and then she spent three more days out there. Uh, year three was, um, the it was, it was two weeks. And after four days, no food, no water, she would get um, the Wachuma. And then I believe on day 10, she would get ayahuasca. And then... Um, Year four, I believe, was 21 days. And she had done all this to get her chinupa, just to give you a sense of how potent she was. And we did a temescal where we got to a point where each of us had to say our prayers out loud. And the sweat lodge was so fucking hot. And I felt like I was going to pass out. And we were all repeating our prayers out loud. And it was this cacophony of energy that was completely overwhelming. But my prayer, I don't remember exactly what I said, but the gist of it was, um, I want to transform my relationship with my body so that I can most fully serve my medicine and that my relationship with my body will be healing in its own right to anyone who witness. And um, since then, I've been really directing my energy inwards to uh, meet this prayer halfway. Because there's a part of me that whenever I do genuinely pray, it is an invitation for me to actually meet God halfway. Like, it's not just me asking God to do something for me. It's like, if I have the audacity to say the prayer, then I have to actually begin to fucking try. And that, uh, for people who don't know, um, I've had a stutter my entire life. And that I can feel that my stutter is a signal from my body that something is out of alignment when I do stutter. And I've also had chronic back pain on and off for the last 12 years. And these last few months, um, really this last month, I've been purposefully slowing down 
to try to make contact with like the parts of me that I bullshit myself about. So one of the practices that I've been doing is uh, I document every behavior that I do throughout the day in my calendar. And so like really what I do is I just kind of write down what I've done for the last hour in my calendar and I'm honest. And I'm not trying to change anything. I'm just trying to be honest with myself. And like when I share this with most people, they start to cringe because they think about what they know they would see if they did that. And, um, you know, I complain about my back pain, but when I look at my calendar, I almost do nothing throughout my day to genuinely address cultivating a relationship with my body by doing things that I know would help, like work out, like stretch, like just lay outside and do some yoga. Like I can look back at my calendar and for two weeks I don't do any of that. And that if I do anything, it's that I try to go too hard in the gym to justify the guilt and the shame that I feel for going 10 or 12 days without doing anything for my body. And then that's when I aggravate something. And then once I aggravate something in my back, I go into this unconscious spiral where I pity myself in this interesting way where I actually do self-destructive coping behaviors by uh, eating food that just increases my inflammation, uh, by staying up later watching things that are blasting blue light into my eyes so that I don't sleep as well. And then uh, also turning to porn to like self-soothe. And by just starting to track these things, um, I'm starting to have transformations in my life that I have never had. I talked about it a little bit on the podcast today, but never in my adult life have I sat down with the type of intention that I would bring to if I was trying to meditate and just stretch. And that for the first time in my adult life, I had an, a half an hour where uh, I consciously stretched and felt so incredibly good. And um, also by just simply writing down the times that I watched porn, I've just, I haven't watched porn in, you know, uh, probably like two weeks. And like, I was watching porn probably about five times a week as just a unconscious pattern to try to get me to relax at the end of the day. Or at least that's the way that I justified it. And the core thing that I'm feeling into, and I get into it a little bit on the podcast, but I can feel that I am, I can feel on the horizon fatherhood. And I can feel that um, many of these unconscious habits that I have that I haven't fully given my awareness to as an adult will only amplify. Like whatever my coping patterns are now, they will only amplify as a father of a newborn. And that um, I've been studying uh, complex PTSD during this uh, last month. 
And it's something that I'll be talking about a lot more on subsequent podcasts, but that I can feel that my coping behaviors are a result of my unique adaptations to my unique complex PTSD that I inherited from my parents because of whatever their shame and their guilt and their fear, whatever their adaptations were to those, those are what I witnessed as a child, just like all of us did. And that it feels like I'm being self-initiated by a wiser part of me to reorient my life um, to prepare for fatherhood. Because my predominant coping mechanism for my adult life has been workaholism. Um, You know, and that's one of the coping, that's one of the addictions in our culture that actually is allowed and even honored in some places. But for people who have been following my story, like when I first got the job at Onnit, for about a year and a half, um, I worked or I was in the office for about 12 hours a day. And I was there literally every day, every Saturday, every Sunday for like a year and a half. And, um, you know, I was, I was running away from every other part of my life other than my professional life. And it's, it's a part of why I'm where I'm at now, but I can feel that like one of my deepest prayers for my life is that when my children look at my just having deceased body, they will know that I was um, a father first uh, and then everything else came after that. And I can feel that I have a radical reorientation required in my life in order for that prayer to be true. And I'm going to do everything that I can for that prayer to be true. So that's part of the reason why I haven't released podcast in a long time i haven't even written a newsletter in probably about five or six weeks and it's because um i'm reorienting but the podcast is back and i probably won't write a newsletter this week but i will write one next week with that said one of the things that i want to invite everyone to do is um, I did a workshop in Sedona uh, about shame. And it was an incredibly potent workshop. And it uh, blew my mind. So again, for people who have been following my story, when I first discovered trauma last year, or about a year and a half ago, uh, I realized that I had been completely blind to the role of trauma when it comes to healing and helping people heal themselves. And that my orientation professionally for the last 12 years has been to help people heal themselves through changing their stories. You know, the podcast is called The Myths That Make Us. But what I learned through studying trauma is that people who have acute PTSD, you have to address the somatic body before you can start to change the stories because the somatic body will overpower the part of you that tells stories. 
and uh, I realized that I had been wrong. I had been wrong about uh, what's the most important thing to address, and that is actually the somatics first, and then it's the stories. I've had the same realization studying shame, is that shame is this thing that is so incredibly corrosive to the human condition, and yet after studying psychology for 12 years, I had never once read a book about shame, and I had never once actually contemplated deeply the nature of shame. And when I read my first book on shame to prepare for this workshop, I had that same feeling of, holy shit, here's a whole realm of the human condition that I have been blind to that is a part of helping people heal themselves. And um, what I've realized through going down the rabbit hole of shame is that the root of shame seems to be locked into what's called complex PTSD. The most popular thing that I've written to date is uh, called What is Trauma? And in that podcast, I focus mostly on acute PTSD. And acute PTSD is when you have one or a few uh, physiologically overwhelming uh, experiences that cause you to be locked in the freeze response and then you don't properly discharge the energy that created the freeze response. For people who are interested in learning more about that, go check out that episode. A part of writing that article is that I discovered that there was this thing called complex PTSD, but that when I was writing the article, I could feel that it was too big of a topic for me to address in that article. What I'm realizing now is that this self-initiatory container that I'm moving into is actually me confronting my unique complex PTSD. And I think a better way to think about it is um, gradual interpersonal trauma. And I think an even better way to think about it is that it's your unique karma. Because most of us have a resistance to accepting the label that we've had a traumatic childhood. And that there's almost this like reflex to protect our parents by not wanting to claim that there was traumatic experiences because we love our parents. But that what I've realized through studying complex PTSD is that to be born and raised in the Western culture in the last 50 years is to guarantee that you have significant layers of um, this type of complex PTSD. And that one of the ways that you will find it is find where your shame is. To find where your guilt is. And so a practice that I've been doing since I've done this workshop is I'm uh, exploring what's called my shame print, which is my unique collection of stories from my childhood when I felt shame. And I'm writing all of these stories down. And I can feel I can feel that through writing down many of these stories, there are people that I need to apologize to. 
actually. And then I had this um, feeling recently that like Thanksgiving is such a powerful holiday, or at least it has the potential to be. But because as a culture, we are so disconnected from our grief and our shame um, that we're really disconnected from being able to fully connect to our gratitude. I had this um, whim to try an experiment that I'm calling forgivings. And forgivings, at least what I am able to see in my imagination right now, is uh, every year when you sit at the table with your family, uh, you share two or three stories from the previous year of something that you have done that has created shame or guilt within you. And you share the story and you ask the people around the table to forgive you. And that it's, um, it might not even be, it doesn't have to be a story with them. And just to be witnessed by your community and to be forgiven. Because there's a part of me that can feel that as I deepen into my shame print and I start to try to figure out my stories, that naturally what's going to happen is I'm going to have to ask my family, um, what are things that uh, I did as a child where you could see that like, you know, the result was that I felt shame or guilt. And what I'm trying to feel into is how can I approach my family in a way where they feel safe to share stories with me of times that I've hurt them because asking them that introducing to them that I am currently trying to like create a timeline of my major shame moments that might give them permission to make contact with the time where I hurt them because they think that, you know, oh, this might be one of his shame stories. You know, it's this time that he did this thing to me. And that I can feel the healing potential in my family where if I was able to uh, learn those stories that I honestly either don't remember or that I didn't even notice as a kid and that I could ask them for forgiveness. And there's something, one of the things that I feel in the spiritual community is that we use the quote from Ram Dass, uh, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family as a justification for us not to try to do the work with our family. And I don't know if that's how Ram Dass meant it, but that's how I see most people use it, is that there's almost this like confession of hopelessness that they could be spiritual with their family. And that there's a part of me that feels that if I can courageously and compassionately for myself um, own my shame stories, and ask them to help me remember, it might be a opportunity to inspire them to, in the privacy of their own heart, to begin to track their shame stories. And that, you know, I have a dream that one day I'll be able to sit around a table with my family and that uh, each of us can have a moment to share a couple of stories of our shame cry 
maybe express the repressed rage or anger about that story. And then to be met with moist, compassionate eyes of our family and to hear everyone say, um, I love you and you're forgiven and I'm sorry. And so for people who uh, feel inspired, the white belt level of this would be to almost like write a story of what this would, how this would play out with your family if you did do it, but you don't have to actually do it, but you still have to write down your two or three stories. And then imagine through writing or just your imagination, imagine saying that to your family and uh, being met by them. The blue belt version of this is to write down two or three stories, two or three shame stories, and then share them with a friend that you know can hold them and then imagine you telling it to your mom or your dad or whoever, but you actually say it to your friend. The black belt version would be to actually do it. So I want to offer you guys that invitation. And if anyone does it, uh, send me an email. Let me know how it goes. I'm really curious about this. Uh, I appreciate you guys um, coming back to the podcast and hearing me talk about all these things. And today's episode is going to be absolute fire. Uh, Charles dropped some incredible stories. And I'm back. I love you guys. Thank you so much. Charles, thank you for coming back. Yes. Uh, it has been months since I've done a podcast. And so uh, a lot's been going on in my life. So if you'll give me the grace, I'm going to kind of try to recap what's been going on and then we'll get into the conversation that we're doing. I would love that. So um, a couple of months ago, I went to Burning Man for the first time and... Uh, did not go into Burning Man expecting that I was going to ask my girlfriend to marry me. And I came back from Burning Man engaged. Wow. And um, I can feel that over the last couple of months, there's been this um, inward movement to self-initiate myself from a single adult male to father and husband. Mm -hmm. And... So I haven't felt like sharing or like putting out things because I've been trying to take my workaholism and redirect it back towards myself and actually give myself um, the presence and the awareness that I give everyone else when I coach or like when I help. Like one of the things I've noticed is I can effortlessly give loving presence to my friends but that I've noticed that especially when I'm in my like workaholic cycle, I give almost no uh, unconditional loving presence to myself to really feel into like, you know, why aren't you working out? Why are you scrolling on your phone for like two and a half hours a day if you were honest with yourself and you were tracking mm -hmm. how much you do it? Why are you watching porn? Mm-hmm. Why are you eating those things that you know that you actually don't like and that even mm -hmm. as you're eating it, if you're paying attention, you can feel that there's a part of you that uh, like it almost feels like you know that you're poisoning yourself. Yeah. And that I noticed that through trying to be productive, um, all of my like small core habits had started to like fray and come apart 
And I was curious about why that was. And um, it wasn't until I stopped making myself work for like eight hours a day and I started to read fiction and I started to, to go on walks. And this was about a month ago. I started to slow down enough where I could hear the intelligence in me that was trying to transform me. And it has brought me to studying complex PTSD. And we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, but probably the most popular thing that I've written to date is called What is Trauma? And in that article, I talk mostly about what's known as acute PTSD. And acute PTSD, first off, most people don't appreciate what trauma is at all. But for most people who do understand trauma, they're the type of trauma they understand is acute PTSD. And that's like a single or a few acute traumatic moments like a bomb going off or uh, being attacked or being raped. And as I was doing all this research for that article, I learned about this thing called complex PTSD. And um, I just didn't get into it. I, I kind of felt like it was too much to get into for how long the article already was. And so it's been like a year and a half since I wrote that first article. And I can feel that um, I'm being asked to write part two. Mm -hmm. And as I began to study complex PTSD, and for people, I think a better name for it would be gradual interpersonal trauma. And that it normally happens with your primary caretakers. And um, the most severe examples, they would hit you or they would assault you or molest you or whatever. But for most people, it's not that severe or it's not that clear that mm -hmm. it's abuse. And that um, what I'm realizing is how much uh, complex PTSD that I do have. And... Like I'm appreciating the nuance of most of my professional career has been to share radically openly about whatever it is that I'm working through. And then I can feel that um, this is not appropriate to share as quote unquote content. And that I'm actually now in the process of like writing a book for myself where I'm creating a timeline of all the memories that I'm cultivating and putting into stories of all the times that I felt shame and the times that I felt um, abandoned mm -hmm. and that I'm going to turn each of those memories into stories, you know, like where I like write the story out as clearly as I can. And then I'm going to actually read those to my fiance before we get married so that mm -hmm. they can be witnessed by one person because there's like, there's this thing about one for people listening. Um, I think 96% of people in Western culture have complex PTSD and that it's best to think about it as like a spectrum, but that all of us are like somewhere in the middle mm -hmm. of that spectrum. And that a part of even admitting that you have it is kind of like an unconscious or an implicit accusation of your parents. And that one thing that I think is really important 
for me as I do this work is to recognize that my parents did not raise me in a vacuum. That if, if you're able to connect to the cultural situation that we're in, um, our great-great-grandparents and our great-grandparents were the survivors and the offsprings of the survivors of two world wars. Mm-hmm. The two world wars claimed something like, I know the first world war claimed 8 million live men died. And that um, about half of eight the men- million. Just World War One. I, I think World War II was more than that. I think the total was something like 18 or 20 million. Way too many. And that at least after World War One, the one study that was done in Britain, they found that about 50% of the men who survived trench warfare came back with complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. And so all of the families that those men came back to got the outpouring of war trauma. Right. And then um, our parents grew up in a culture without the internet, completely embedded in a story that, you know, that hole you feel in you. If you play the game of culture well enough and you acquire enough status and enough money and enough fame, that hole will be filled. And that that cultural dream hadn't been broken in the way that it feels like it's broken now for most people. And that... um, our parents had to work jobs they hated. Yeah. Most of them uh, didn't ever feel like they had enough money. Most of them um, gave birth in hospitals where they got dated and the child was taken away from them for some amount of time. Um, most of our parents were taught by the popular culture that the way that you teach your child to sleep is to put them in their room and close the door. And no matter how much they cry, you, you don't go in because you're trying to, there's a direct quote. It's, um, you have to break the high chair tyrant. That is standard teachings. Right. Unfortunately. And so one of the things that I'm connecting to as I'm studying complex PTSD is that, most of us arrive into our ego, you know, at age three or whatever, having already gone through many layers of um, what a healthy culture would see as traumatic. And so it creates this like minimum threshold that we all share, that we all agree unconsciously, okay, if it's at least this, it doesn't count because we all have it. Right. And that uh, one of the core aspects of um, complex PTSD is that you minimize what was traumatic. Right. And so with that, um, I've been curiously exploring my patterns and really trying to look at um, like the ways I hurt myself unconsciously, you know, like with the choices of like how I eat or um, like the not working out or the workaholism, like a big one for me is workaholism. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm not worthy unless I 2X the output of everyone around me type thing. And that um, it's this really curious and uh, tender part of my life, but that ultimately I can feel that what 
is happening is that because I can feel that fatherhood is on the horizon, mm -hmm. it's like I now have the inner motivation and the courage to confront my personal complex PTSD, um, not to share it, mm -hmm. but to um, try to alchemize as much of it as I reasonably can so that my children can get a little bit more of a genuine, healthy start. And um, it feels like it's gonna be a really cool self-initiation ritual to like claim all this and share it with my partner. And that kind of like sets the stage. I know that you're a great person for me to be speaking with these things about and that you also feel called to really bring in the story of your father because mm -hmm. last time we talked a lot about your mother and that one of the things that I can feel for me specifically is that um, my parents got divorced when I was 10 and my dad left. And it's one of those things where it's like, I minimized how massive of a hole yeah. that left in me. And that um, one of the major spells that was cast on me when I was a kid is as once my dad left, um, whenever, I would show like aggression or power in the home. The spell that I would get reflected back at me was, you're just like your father. And um, whatever the intention with how it was said, the way that it was received was, uh, what you just did was shameful. Mm -hmm. Like what you just did was worthy of being exiled, of like having, you know, because dad was gone. Right. So uh, that's why I haven't done a podcast in a while. Yeah. And um, I'm going to get back on that train because I can feel how good it feels to do podcasts. And so uh, it's good to have you here, brother. And I appreciate you holding space for all that. Man, I really appreciate and honor your courage and your curiosity and exploration into these parts. And you're exactly right. Every program, every false narrative, every story, every, you know, experience of trauma that we choose to heal no longer has to carry forth with our children. And that is truly my greatest inspiration and in why I do what I do. You know, I get to wake up with these incredible daughters. We have another one now since our last podcast. <laughs> yeah, Everly, she's incredible. And I wake up and watch them sleep. And it's just like the most beautiful peace in my heart. And every time I get triggered, you know, it's a choice. It's literally I can resort to the mind's band-aids, go to the fridge, stuff it. I can, you know, go on scroll hole on Instagram and try to find some dopamine there or go on Netflix and try to escape from it. You know, but that just perpetuates it. And those are band-aids that the mind provides because it only knows what we've done before and that we can survive with. Whereas um, I can choose to take it through my process step-by-step step and go to the source of where this anxiety or shame or whatever energy might be showing up where that's coming from originally 
and begin layer by layer resolving and healing and alchemizing that and getting to you know do this so much for myself and then get to share it with others too is um i can share that on the other end of that type of healing a lot of dreams come true yeah (laughs) it's it really is you know if i back up a little bit and we even you know trauma is such a big capital t word and such a um you know topic now that i think so many people are are looking into and having more curiosity as to their traumas and and what to do with this right because a lot of people are aware that we have things that went on earlier in our life that still show up in our experience and yet there aren't a ton of tools you know there's um at least what I find is there's not many tools that feel like they don't bring with them a bunch of like metaphysical uh like package in the same way that like what buddhism is to religions Mm -hmm. like there's core truths in all the religions but there feels like there's a lot of um additives Mm -hmm. to whatever the core thing is and at least just the way that i'm composed i don't resonate with those as much i I can almost appreciate them as like art forms like when i look at a lot of the like therapies i see Mm. um it feels like it lacks the crystalline elegance of like what Buddhism offered. And um, cause there are a lot of people who share techniques, but it feels mm-hmm. like there's something about, um, at least for me, it feels like it's not uh, as elegant as it could be. And, and an asterisk that I wanna note that I think is important is that, um, the admittance of trauma is not the invitation to then be tricked by your trauma that seeks perfection to be like all right i have to go and scrub all this shit out right so that my child has no trauma ever right and anyone who feels like they might have that uh response to hearing us talk about it i just want to offer very clearly um i don't think that that's possible and i also don't think that that's what life has intended for us and Mm -hmm. that everyone that i know who is like incredible and beautiful and of service to the world and has like superpowers all of them it's the result of them having done the alchemization with their traumas and that it's it's a it's an impossible inevitably shaming expectation to believe that if my child has any traumas, I have failed. And so I have to do all this work. And so I'm not playing this game with myself where it's like, I'm going to become a pure, a pure ray of light and that my child will know no trauma. It's that I'm trying to do my part, Mm -hmm. which is to meet the whatever part of my traumas that I can alchemize now that is like of service to my children. And it's not this expectation of perfection. Right. Absolutely. And that's what I was pointing at is that, you know, each word carries a charge based on the meaning that we've given it from our past experiences. And so this capital T word can bring up 
different stuff for different people. And I just want to create a foundation for seeing this with a heightened eagle eye perspective of this is an initiation into your hero's journey. You know, all these things that we think happen to us, there are some really powerful uh, self-inquiry questions that we can begin to ask that will, you know, the quality of the questions that we ask can greatly enhance the quality of our lives. And that can set our reticular activation to, you know, receiving answers and more tools. And this has exactly been my path is that I didn't, you know, I was like, well, what do we do with all this? You know, these are things I don't like about myself and I want to change. And I've tried all these things and it didn't work until I found something that did, you know, and that was, that involved taking a lot of pieces through my experiences and amazing teachers, guides, and even plant medicines that allowed me to practice and practice and practice and refine and simplify a process that does get incredible results for going to the source of these traumas for ourselves and getting to shed new light on them with this intention that it is in our highest and greatest good and it can unlock some of our greatest God-given gifts, talents, passions, um, deeper messages on our hearts that we can then share through that journey. And I think it's important to note that because there can be such a charge to that word, you know, just like anxiety, that word can feel like nails on a chalkboard, right? Yet everybody experiences it in, in the human experience. And so shedding, just offering a different perspective as we dive deep into this um, can be really helpful for, yeah. for seeing the light through it. And, um, you know, <clears throat> I, it, it saddens me to witness the norm like you mentioned of sleep training has been like these professionals have taught you know it's been known that yeah you just lock your kid away in their crib and just let them cry it out while you leave you know and and we had our challenges and we had our ways of doing things and so we kept hearing these you know, so-called success stories of people that have done this sleep training that it worked well for. And yet everyone's so different. Like I had this kind of knowing in my self about Sophia, our oldest daughter. Um, and we gave it a try, like an experiment for a short amount of time. Like, hey, we're going to get her settled and then give her some time to herself and see if we can go five minutes, you know? And doing this protocol just hurt my heart. That's what most parents say, yeah. She, I just knew, I know her so well that it wasn't long before she's crying, standing up, and then literally just purged, like threw up. And I looked at, my wife and I was like, this just isn't for us. You know, this yeah. isn't, this isn't the way. And so, um, you know, we didn't put her through that, that torture 
much for for long at all. And I love getting to put her to bed every night. Like, yeah, sometimes it takes an hour or an hour and a half of like being with her and and reading books and our, you know, nightly protocol. But I actually, it's so heartwarming for me to have that special quality time with her. And I remember there were times early on when I was like, man, why hasn't she asleep yet? Like, this is taking so long. I got all these things I need to do, right? And I witnessed that, those thoughts. And I said, what's more important than this Yeah, right now? being with her, allowing her to go into a peaceful dream state and get a great night's sleep, you know? So I cherish that, those moments now and we get to do it our way. You know, we, we gave a little micro dose of the traditional way of sleep training and it was definitely not for us. And so, um, you know, I think that's where a lot of issues begin and that can catalyze this, classic abandonment wound, father wound, the mother wound, and this will show up in our lives, you know, as self-destructive behaviors, you know, at the root of any addiction, at the root of, you know, self-punishing habits. Pain beneath that is usually guilt guilt of some sort and what follows guilt is punishment and so you know as you peel away these layers and get to become really aware of your landscape of you know the level of trauma that you went through that oftentimes gets kind of swept under the rug like as adults like oh you got bullied a little bit in school you know that's no big deal right but then if you go to the experience of that eight-year-old self boy, that is like the first time experiencing those emotions and being bullied and the shame and the, the anger, the sadness, feeling exiled and casted out in that way. That is super intense experience. Yeah, It is not to be denied. And that the energy of that will perpetuate in our bodies as issues in our tissues until we go to the source of it and resolve it for ourselves. And it's always worth doing that because there are so many incredible gifts and dreams that can come true on the other side of that. And so I just share that to inspire some hope in yeah. everyone that's that's dealt with trauma and that is still um, taking a look at that. One of the things that I've been contemplating on is that trauma's first name was karma. And that what in the buddhist tradition and its um essential nature what karma is is it's your actions mm -hmm. and it's kind of this belief that like this action produces this response from life and that there's this idea called dukkha which is um most people think it means that life is is suffering but that what dukkha technically means is um, it's when the axle of a wheel is out of alignment. And so the experience of riding in the cart is bad. Mm -hmm. And that there's um, dukkha karma, at least that's how I'm imagining it in my mind, which is um, the cyclical reactivity behaviors 
that we engage in that produce pain in our lives. Mm -hmm. And that it's, it's almost like we have to step out of the word trauma because most people, their instinctual response to it is no, not me. But that um, if we could relax into that maybe trauma is such an essential nature of the human experience that this um, not quite religious thing, but this like this deep philosophical movement that spanned thousands of years, the essential thing that the Buddha was contending with was dukkha karma, mm -hmm. was that most people have um, an unconscious cyclical reactivity that produces pain in their lives. And so it's not that life equals pain. It's that these type, this type of unconscious reactions to life yes. create pain. Perpetuates it, yeah. And what it does for me is like, because trauma feels like it's this thing that's only started in like the last like maybe 100 years because, you know, our culture is so fucked up, blah, blah, blah. But when I feel into this dukkha karma idea, it's like, no, the human condition as such has to contend with this type of thing. And we all have it. And that you will find it where you are in your habits, that the habits produce pain. Yep. And we all have habits that we know that we have that produce pain. And there's a part of my mind that like, because I have a sense of grandiosity where I really believe like I can understand anything that I really try to understand. Like I'll go find the books, I'll do the research, mm -hmm. I'll figure it the fuck out. Like if, if any human can understand it, I can eventually understand it. And whether or not that's true, that's a belief that I have. And then I look at my habits and I'm just like, the, the radical disassociation from the fact that like, I haven't figured out how to be able to sprint and not have back pain for multiple days mm -hmm. for the last 10 years. But I'm out here talking about being a coach and trying to help heal your trauma and blah, blah, blah. Like um, there's, this, there's this sense that the dukkha karma, the trauma, if you will, it's so close to us that it's like water to a fish. And we're so in it that we don't realize that it's there. And I'm trying to cultivate the compassionate awareness that doesn't trigger this really fast cascade of like minimization, then disassociation, and then justification for the fact that like I can look out at my life and just and just see that I'm living in a sea of um, unconscious habits that produce pain mm -hmm. in my life. And it feels like, uh, The thing that's interesting is like when I bring this up to spiritually inclined people, the response I tend to get is that they try to soothe me in a way that it implies that I'm being too hard on myself. And that it's, it's almost like they're not connecting to my nervous system and feeling that I'm actually not. And that they're almost like unconsciously trying to defend against the part in them that feels the like guilt at like, right. oh shit, me too. But I don't, I'm not looking at it. Right. And I'm curious what comes up for you when I share that. Oh, 
it's everything from, you know, as a, I get the example of a baby crying, right? <clears throat> that baby crying is her way of communicating, but that cry can make everyone in the room very uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? And so it brings up a lot. And we all have these coping mechanisms, these strategies, these ways of dealing with that uncomfortable feeling, right? Just like, you know, the ultra spiritual that would try to soothe you through your um, share. Of- and like the thing I want to be clear on is like, it's not ultra, you know, like it's, it's not people who are easy to make fun of, you know, it's, it's most people who are kind and compassionate and who know me who in their own right are like competent and high achieving people Yeah, that there's still this like, um, it's it's really interesting, but I can almost feel like they don't see me in that moment when they start to give the advice because if they really connected to me, they could feel that like I'm not beating myself up, but I am looking at it and being like, well, what's going on, yeah. Eric? Yeah. Like, what is going on here? And even when I say that, what's going on, Eric? I can feel my eyes start to water because there's this, like for me specifically, kind of the big one is my relationship to my, uh, athletic expression that when I was a teenager, it it was my entire life Mm -hmm. and I was great wherever I went. And that, um, really for like 12 years now, like I haven't been able to sprint without having back pain. And there's this, and I have this whole cascade of, um, responses that happen when I start to have pain in my back Mm. and you know it comes and it goes but I know in the privacy of my own heart that like just to give a explicit example two days ago was the first time in my entire adult life where I was able to stretch for half an hour because it's this is very uniquely idiosyncratic. So I don't know if this will resonate with people, but for me, it's profound. And it's that whenever I start to stretch, especially when I start to stretch my hamstrings, I feel like a kid again. Because when I was a kid, my hamstrings were so tight that I couldn't sit on the ground and be comfortable. Mm -hmm. And that the moment I start to feel the tension in my hamstrings from stretching my hamstrings, it's like my brain just falls apart. And like if my intention was to hold that stretch for a minute, I, in my entire life, I couldn't do that. Mm. It's like I couldn't keep my awareness smooth enough to remember what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until two days ago where I did probably about 10 stretches and I set a timer for two minutes and I went to the end range and I like actively was like reparenting myself and I held the intention and I did the thing and I did it for like 28 minutes. And I was like, there's a part of me that there's this incredible tension of this like shame and grief at the same time where I can feel once I do this for 10 days in a row, I'm going to be an entirely new person. And that I've, and there's to the degree that I know it's happening is actually to the degree that I'm feeling this grief and this shame. That's Mm -hmm. like 12 years. 
years. Wow. And I never was able to corral the totality of who I am to sit down on the ground and stretch. And that there's, um, like, it's that, yeah. That's beautiful. I appreciate that share because there's so many ways to go with this. Uh, what one that comes up is it, you know, that saying there's two wolves within each of us, right? Mm -hmm. One white wolf, one dark wolf, and which one are we feeding? Right. And so when you are taking that time, carving out that space to sit with Eric and stretch and allow yourself to not only stretch your physical body and your muscles and tendons, but also stretch your perspective, mm -hmm. right? Of what's possible, then this can open up a lot. And um, I get another ping because one of the protocol that I work with clients is, you know, before we get to the compensation patterns, the, you know, someone comes to see me with low back pain, before we dive in on the finding the muscle muscle groups that aren't firing properly and the compensation patterns and the dysfunction that's going on in the body that's showing up as a check engine light pain first the body's so intelligent that it works from the inside out meaning that say we do find that your intrinsic core muscles aren't firing properly right? And those are like your internal weight belt. This is a common one that I get with low back pain. And then all it takes is going to pick up a pencil or something and you can throw out your back because these muscles that are supposed to be online aren't getting a signal from the brain. And oftentimes, like 80% of the clients that come see me for low back pain, it's oftentimes the jaw, specifically right side. That's the neurological traffic jam. And so if I use muscle testing to get these answers from the body and it's profound because we can treat what we find and I can show you how to turn those muscles back on with a, you know, a release technique on your jaw. This can bring up some of the emotions that, you know, might be stuck as issues in the tissues. Um, some common ones, the jaw, it's associated with the limbic system. So oftentimes anger, uh, resentment, even revenge type of energy can be stored there and be enough to be a neurological traffic jam so that that signal can't get to where it needs to go to stabilize your spine so that you can move freely, right? So before we even get to that, that's the fun part. <clears throat> I drop in on um, this. I offer a really high-tech piece of equipment. It's a rubber ball, right? One of those small ones that you get from the 25-cent machine. And I teach them self-reflexology. And so this is really fascinating because you go see a good reflexologist, they might share, oh, wow, your liver needs some support. And you know they hit it because they hit that trigger point on your foot that our feet, our hands, our faces, even our eyes are maps for our internal organ systems. And these take precedent over the external extremities. So if that goes unaddressed, Say you have, you know, some livers compromised or some digestive issues, right, that aren't addressed. Well, we can do the superficial tune-up and get those muscles firing. You'll feel great. 
you leave the session, you feel like a new man. But if some of these things go unaddressed, then it can go back to the old patterns mm. really quickly. So in, first, we address the metaphysics, right? And this is um, based on a lot of the work from Louise Hayes, um, some incredible work out there on how to understand the thoughts that are creating the experience, the pain, the dysfunction in our body, and how to, a really unique way to resolve that. And it's just setting an intention and beginning with some self-inquiry, right? So first thing is like, uh, do you want to heal this? And that might seem like a simple question. They're like, man, I came a long way. I've had people that come all the way from Australia to come get these healing sessions because they feel like they've tried everything else. They're like, of course, I have to ask because some people get such a payoff from their pain. Like that's how they're used to receiving love or support or attention, right? That they're not willing to give that up yet. So then we can drop into powerful self-inquiry questions. This sets your reticular activation on to seeking answers, right? Gives your mind something productive to do. One, how is this happening for me? And for me is so much different than to me, right? It helps get us out of victim mode and into you know, what is the meaning of this? How is this happening for me? The second one is what are the lessons and blessings to learn and gain from this? Three, what needs to change? What in my life, am I keep feeding this black wolf, what needs to change so that I can, you know, dive into more of the the white wolf or find a balance between the two that that allows for more harmony peace and healing within your system and so what's fascinating is when we do the reflexology on a lot of times they might find i have the i bring up the the map on your feet right to, to all the organ systems this is the same thing they use in you know chinese medicine and in acupuncture and so where you find the tightest spot on your foot with that little ball, that's important information, right? Oftentimes with low back pain and stuff, it might show up in the solar plexus. And so that's giving me good intel as to where we get to hone in on. And so I offer a practice through that, deep breathing technique, visualization, using what Einstein already knew, that imagination is more important than information because you know, knowledge will get you from A to B, but imagination will give you everything. So that allows you to start visually and kinesthetically clearing from, say, your liver, if that was the case, any energetic blocks there, any 3D debris, I call it, that's coming up, right? That you can then begin to ground and allow gravity to take that down through that point in your foot Mm. and offer it to Mother Earth so that she can compost it. She can take these energies of grief and um, anxiety and turn it into flowers. That's the power that's right under our feet, right? So this is a really profound visualization technique. But what's also really cool is that physiologically, oftentimes our feet are so tight, the fascia in the bottom of the feet. And those are connected all the way up your kinetic chain through your whole posterior to the back of your skull. And so just by doing 
this massage work and release work on trigger points on the bottom of your feet. We haven't done any stretches, right? I have them do it before, just a forward fold without bending your knees, see where your fingers land. Oftentimes it'll be like, you know, right at the ankles, right? Where your foot starts. After this, you should all try this. After this technique, this self-reflexology, oftentimes they can touch the floor. No problem. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this can be really beneficial to add into your stretching and find more of these, you know, lessons and blessings that, that you're to learn through this. And I can't tell you how many people I see with that similar, like so many people experience low back pain, like 80% of the population, right? And I always see these common denominators. Um, some people, it's the diaphragm that's not, that's the overcompensating, right? Something scary happened to them. They did the, right? A traumatic experience or a car accident or something. And then, then they're holding this tension in their diaphragm. So that signal can't get from the brain to those intrinsic core muscles called your transverse abdominis that helps stabilize your spine. And so what's beautiful is that usually in as little as one session, we can get to all these different parts, the root of what's going on and show you a quick tune-up that you can do for yourself to turn those muscles back online, teach you a bulletproof core technique that it makes you instantly stronger in everything you do because we combined expansion breathing with the optimal activation of those deep core muscles, your internal weight belt. So now your peripheral muscles, your arms and legs are much stronger too because your core is solid. So it's phenomenal to witness um, what we can uncover in as little as one session. And then there's not to um, overlook the emotional component that's involved, right? And so that's what's so beautiful about the inner peace process is that the emotions, the energy in motion is pointing to and showing you where in your body we're holding these traumas, right? And that's giving us clues. And then as we peel away through these layers, um, you'll also discover in this process some of the limiting subconscious beliefs mm. that were created. We created them at a younger age when we were going through these challenging experiences. And, and those you know, the I'm not good enough, the, you know, I'm not worthy of love, right? All these stories that we create that seem like nonsense as when, you know, looking at them now, but if that's running in the subconscious, these stories will keep repeating themselves with different characters, different scenarios, um, and keep pointing and triggering. The trigger is the gateway to the source of where that's coming from so that you can resolve it for yourself. And so it's by no mistake that you, the answers are revealing themselves for you and the support and, um, you know, as soon as you have an interest in that, that turns on the phenomenon, your reticular activation system. And yeah. so more of that will show up in your experience and more resources. Um, so what's really fascinating is that I wouldn't have known any of this. I wouldn't have a practice in any of this had I not broke my back snowboarding, right? 2008, huge blizzard, 
Like it was a full on blizzard up in Mammoth Mountain. This was me and two of my buddies and you couldn't even see a blur of a tree like 10 feet in front of you. It was crazy, snow coming every which way, but we're already at the top and they'd shut down the lifts because it's so dangerous. So we're like, man, let's just, we looked at each other, we're like, well, stay low, be ready for anything, let's charge. So we're having a blast. Like just imagine snowboarding through a white abyss. It was like we were literally like cloud surfing and having a blast. My friends are ahead of me and about halfway down the mountain, I took a jump that I didn't know was there. And it felt like I just went off a cliff. And I freaked out, no idea where the landing's at. I tensed up and boom, as soon as I landed, it felt like a lightning bolt hit my low back. It was the most physical excruciating pain I'd ever experienced. And I'm yelling to my friends, hoping they're not too far ahead. Maybe they can hear me. Nope. I look at my phone. It's dead. Oh my God. And here I am at a level 11 on a 10 scale pane in the middle of a blizzard stuck on Mammoth Mountain. And it's in those moments that you literally like find another gear and channel, you know, my inner Spartan warrior just to click my board off and sit on my board and slide down as far as I could before I'd keel over and breathe into the pain for a while. And this was, dude, talk about a hero's journey. This was, I didn't know if I was going to make it. How old were you when this happened? This is uh, 2008, so 43 now, whatever the math is on that. And I remember finally getting down the mountain and then I went to go see all these doctors. I could barely stand up straight. I'm a mess. And they're showing me x-rays, MRIs, and I'm not liking what they're telling me because you know, my background in kinesiology, health and wellness, I love these sensory suits, right? Like this human body is like the great, my greatest fascination pretty much. And they're telling me that I would need surgery, maybe multiple surgeries, I'd never move the same again. And that was the worst news I could have gotten. So I was, well, thank you. I'm going to get another opinion. And so more and more doctors told me the same thing. And so here I was faced with this decision that would be pivotal in my path in life. And I knew even in a state of fight or flight that I did not want to go. I wasn't to go under the knife. Like that was just not my path. So I chose a path of self-healing and boy, it was not easy. And this meant sitting in my apartment where I could barely even crawl to the bathroom. I was in so much pain, like having to sit with all these emotions that I had been running from years before, you know, shame, whether I could even stand up straight, let alone get to work and do anything productive, fear if I was ever going to move the same again and all grief that I hadn't fully felt from losing my mom. And in this like, puddle of tears I just finally let fall through that came massive clarity and I knew there was a way and I just set the intention as I went into a meditation to receiving all answers to healing this naturally and during that meditation a friend I hadn't talked to in over two years sent me a text and said hey I heard 
your back's in bad shape, check out neurokinetic therapy, NKT, the work of David Weinstock. And so this was my path. And I was so blown away by everything I was studying with his work that I got him on the phone. He set me up with one of his top students in San Diego, where I was at the time. I went and met Christina and boy, I walked in looking like Shakira stuck in a mid hip dance move. Like I was a wreck, right? Like hips are over to the left, my upper body's to the right. I'm like, can you help me? <laughs> and uh, she got me on the table. And side note, that was representative. My body was showing me how out of alignment I was with my purpose at that time, right? Training 10 clients a day, health coaching, and then going out on the weekends and numbing out all the emotions I didn't want to feel with sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever. And so this had to change. And once I got on that table, she tested some muscles, found out my glutes weren't firing. I was like, what do you mean my glutes aren't firing? She has me pushed down and I couldn't, like nothing was working. It's like, that's weird. She goes, yep, all form, no function. She had a good sense of humor. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, clench your jaw and we'll retest the glutes. And as soon as I clenched my jaw, the glutes fired again. Hmm. I was like, that's interesting. So hmm. my body was showing us that the jaw was the common denominator compensating for my big guns, the glutes that weren't getting the signal. So once we discovered that, she's putting on these rubber gloves. She's like, I know we just met, but I'm gonna have to go in your mouth. <laughs> I said, you're gonna what? And she said, are you okay if I release your jaw? I said, yeah super painful, achy, but man, I'll tell you, even after a couple minutes of releasing like this tension, tightness in my jaw that I didn't even know was there, you know, um, release that, it opened up the neural pathway and now my glutes were firing again. And so I could do some exercises to actually engage those and, and re, you know, improve the neuromuscular efficiency. So I got this tune up. We did this for a couple other muscle groups in my body, the compensation patterns, I got off the table and I could stand up straight again. I was like 90% better in one session. And I gave her a huge hug and I said, I'm going to come see you every week and I want to learn this. And I'm taking all of David Weinstock's courses. So that's what I did. And that helped me realign with my purpose and discover these gifts. You know, I became a neurokinetic pain relief specialist and opened up my first practice there in um, Encinitas. And so it's just everyone listening, those traumas, that pain, the worst feeling emotions, there's treasure chests in that waiting for you to open those and discover. I have so many questions. <laughs> Holy shit. I didn't know any of that. That's incredible. One, um, I can absolutely feel that my jaw's tight, mm -hmm. chronically tight, um, specifically on my right side. Very yep. interesting. Another thing that's really interesting is I had an insight um, in a non-ordinary state of consciousness to start to uh, wear mouth guards when I worked out so that I could clench down and mm -hmm. learn what it feels like to clench down. I bought the mouth guards and I didn't ever use them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that connects really interestingly to what you shared. Great for your teeth still doesn't address the right josh yeah. yeah what i meant was for like when i lift heavy right. to like get that full like bite down on the mm -hmm. mouth guard type of like output yep. but yeah heard 
And then the third thing that's really interesting is um, I've gotten to a point in my understanding of the human body and also kind of learning about the history of uh, how the perverse incentive structures in Western medicine create treatments that I don't think are conspiratorially malicious, but just once you start to see the pattern, most of the conventional wisdom is wrong. And one of the things that has never made sense to me is that all dentists talk about grinding your teeth as this is just a part of the human condition. This is our justification for you to pay like 8,000 bucks for us to make you a custom thing to keep you from grinding your teeth. And I tried to look online for like, what is the natural cause of grinding? And I couldn't find anything. Like I, like even with like the back pain stuff, you can at least find books by people who have explored other realms that work that intuitively make sense. Um, But I couldn't find anything on teeth grinding. Mm -hmm. And it feels like from listening to you, teeth grinding is very likely a result of the fact that 80% of people have back pain and what's linked to back pain is a um, chronically tight jaw that's not actually open and that... um, would this address teeth grinding? Yeah, it can dramatically help with that because even in your case, notice how it's tighter on the right side, right side, tight side. In Eastern philosophy, we know the right side represents the masculine, the doing, right? And the left side's the feminine and the allowing ourselves to just be and receive. So that's giving you clues right? The, that part of you that's always feels like you need to be producing more than others. Um, this is how these things show up in our body. And it's all happening for us to point to the source of what's going on. And so say in that example, right, we might discover that with muscle testing, with the assessment I do, that your intrinsic core muscles aren't firing, right? Like you can test for the six pack, and those oftentimes are strong, the superficial muscles. But when I have people draw their belly button in and we retest the abs, oftentimes it goes weak. You'd be amazed how many people are walking around with these muscles not firing properly. And these are important internal weight belt muscles for stabilizing your spine so that they should be firing milliseconds before you do any move, right? So if that's the case, then we need to figure out why and what's compensating for it. And not all cases, but pretty much 80% of the people that I see for low back pain, it's oftentimes a jaw. And so when we discover that imbalance, that dysfunction in the body, then you can correct it because I give you a self-release technique for the jaw. Then right after that, it's important to rewire, allow the signal to get to those intrinsic core muscles. And I teach a specific technique for that, the bulletproof core technique, it turns those back on line and then your jaw doesn't need to be working overtime anymore, right? So it's like your jaw's been doing all the work for your intrinsic core muscles. Now we got those core muscles back online so your jaw can take a break and relax, mm-hmm. right? And so that's why that coupled with the inner peace process of going deeper into any other emotional um, emotions, energy and motion that's been stuck, you trapped emotions. Um, and that is a very comprehensive way of going to the source 
of why this, why you're getting this experience, um, why it's keeping you from enjoying what you love to do, sprints, and how to correct it. Well, I don't and, enjoy sprints. I enjoy yeah. hooping, but sprinting is yeah. kind of intrinsic if you want to be not a piece of shit on the basketball right. court, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating. And it's all related. Like this stuff that we find physically and, and physiologically in our bodies can point to the traumas. Yeah. Right. And so, um, you know, I can give just a, uh, a quick example of, you know, how I've used this medicine, right? This wasn't too long ago. Um, this is a great example too, because I mentioned how I loved Incredible Hulk as a kid and how that actually made me fascinated with anger because this is a story about anger. And somehow um, my Instagram account got hacked, right? And they managed to get my password and reset it. And then they had control of my account, right? How long ago was this? This was less than a year ago. And God, that would suck. It, and because I had like, you know, I do some of my business through there and it's like four years, five years of my art on there, you know? So because that I got to see how much that meant to me, like this thing, Instagram, that's, you know, <laughs> there's lots of things we could say about it, but uh, it really fired me up. Like this was, I felt violated. I felt like I can't believe someone just it was able to do that and take this from me. And so right after that got hacked, the hackers are contacting me on WhatsApp. And they're like, you better answer the phone. We have your account. We're going to, you know, we can delete your account. And then I chose not to respond because I'm furious. I'm in incredible Hulk state, right? I'm like, I can't believe these guys would do this. And like, they, it, it was like not dealing with a human being. I felt like I was dealing with like a parasite, right? And so instead of answering the phone in Incredible Hulk rage, I chose to take it through my inner peace process. And so this is intense energy. What is it? Name it, right? Furious anger like a specific flavor that I have felt before. And second, where does it show up in my body? And it was right in my solar plexus, giving me a stomach ache. And so then I take it to, when was the first time I experienced that specific flavor of anger? And in a meditative state, it came to me really quick. It was like, wow, my 16-year-old self, when I... We had tryouts for a basketball team. I'd already been on the team. We were had our whole crew were like epic basketball team, super fun. Um, I go look at the list and I didn't make the cut. And so I, I was like, there must be a mistake here. I'm like one of the great players on our team. So I go storming into the coach's office and neither coach could look me in the eye. And... I was like, you guys obviously made a mistake. I didn't see my name on the list. And they 
told me that they had to make a tough decision and that, um, you know, they're really sorry and all these things. And I'm like, are you serious? Like you're just taking this whole high school basketball year from me because they had it out for me because I was the rebel and, you know, didn't, didn't always play by the rules. And so they wanted to make an example of me. And I remember in that moment, I was so angry. I literally wanted to pick up their entire desk and throw it through the wall, like Incredible Hulk style. I didn't. Tried to compose myself, left that office so confused, so pissed off, didn't know what to do with that energy. And this was my, this was the same anger I was feeling. This is why it was coming up now. And so I got the opportunity to reparent my 16 year old as my current self get to be there with him through that whole experience and actually give him permission slip to release some of this, to, to, to use some of this anger. It's like, you know, what do you need? And he just wanted to break stuff. My 16 year old was like, I just want to smash something like Hulk. Right. So we were in the middle of a move. So luckily I had all these extra chairs that we didn't need anymore. So I took my inner 16 year old and we went outside and just smashed the heck out of these chairs and like just stomping on boxes and destroying stuff, right? Like super destructive energy that had to be released. Otherwise it would keep showing up. And so giving myself permission to that. Then I sat with him after we exhausted all that energy and he had this smile on his face. You know, my, my 16 year old was like, that's what I needed. Thank you. And I asked him, you know, do you want to stay in this experience? Or would you like to come with me so I can show you everything we've created up till now, how much we've grown, our family, like there's a lot to show you. He was ecstatic, super stoked, integrated him into my heart. He's happy now. I'm in a neutral place now. Now I'm ready to answer that phone. And so I answer, and now I'm dealing with these hackers that were felt like parasites, right? And I took control of the conversation. I said, listen, how long have you guys been doing this, running this scam? And he said, oh, years, bro, years. And I said, well, do you believe in karma? He said, yeah. I said, good. Then you know that these actions are going to come back to you in some way. And I said, do, your, do you have kids? He said, yeah. This, I got I to gotta make money to get food on the table. And I was like, I can, I can understand that. Do your kids know that you do this? He's like, no. And I was like, so now it was, instead of a parasite, I'm dealing human to human, right? And I said, listen, you have opportunity right now to make this right. And you can give me the password and we can go our separate ways and call it good. And you can, you know, show up for your children. He's like, no, I need money. And I was like, what is it you want? And he goes, $500 and I'll give you your password back. And I said, no deal. And I will make you a deal though. Here's three conditions. One, I give you a hundred dollars and you make sure too, that that goes towards your children, right? So the first deal is this goes towards feeding your children. 
The second one is you erase all my information. We never talk to each other again. Third one is you look for a real job or a career, something that you don't have to feel shame about telling your kids that you do. It can actually provide in a good way, right? And if you agree to those conditions, then I can send you it right now. And he said, $300. And I was like, no deal and hung up on him. Meanwhile, I'm at the park with my family. Just, you know, my, my wife knows that my account's been hacked and all this stuff. And so I'm just enjoying some time with my kids and letting that play out. He's texting, you know, I'm going to, you better respond or I'm going to get, you know, um, I'm going to put porn on your account. Right. And I was like, wow, that's a quick way to let my followers know that it's not me. And, and so all these empty threats, right? But I gave him time and then eventually answered again and said, listen, last chance, same deal applies, these three conditions, I'll send you the money now if you agree to that. And he said, okay, but it has to be crypto. I said, that's fine, I have crypto. He said, well, prove to me you have an account. So showed him some proof and I said, great. Now that I've showed you proof, give me the password and, um, and then we can deal with this. So he sends me the password. And literally in two seconds, I switched the account back to another password, got my account back and hung up on him. And so I just high-fived my wife and said, hey, score for the good guys. We, I got my account back. And so we celebrated and I let some time go by, but I knew this wasn't complete yet because I could tune in and feel like, one, I don't want this guy hassling me anymore. And two, I'm a man of my word. And so I let an hour or so go by though, because it was important that he felt that same anger and rage that he's creating for other people by doing what he's doing. Wow. And so that was his medicine. And then, um, you know, I texted him, said, you know, I'll send it to you now and um, we'll call it good. I'll never hear from you again. And boom, I sent him the money and um, got my account back. And that would not have happened had I answered that phone in a complete rage. So, it's one wow. example of taking ownership for our emotions and our actions and a way to go to the source of where this healing's needed. And so for me, it was that 16 wow. year old. That is such a good story. Mm. Oh my God. That feels like one of the best stories that I've heard on here. There's it's crazy, right? There's a couple of things that really stand out for me. One, um, complete, completely resonating with each part of that process that you did. Um, but the two things that stand out the most for me is one, uh, people who haven't experienced it cannot appreciate how powerful your, the tone of your presence can be at piercing someone's guards and stories. And that the way that you were able to answer the phone and even engage in a dialogue, like they're... <clears throat> It feels like there's something 
undeniable with, within every human, at least in my experience so far in my life, I haven't encountered a potent enough version of focused evil where this hasn't been the case, but that there's almost like the same way that a plant will always stretch towards where the light is, no matter how wounded someone is, that they have a plant in them, that if you have um, like unconditional positive regard Mm -hmm. for them that inner plant will like yield to you right and that a part of the fatherly like unconditional positive regard is because i don't just love who you are now but i love the future you that you could be a part of fatherly love seems to be like um it's highlighted in that hour that you gave him where it was like Mm -hmm. If I was tr- if I was engaging with my son, and my son had done an action like this, it feels at least it resonates with me. And this might not be a popular thing to espouse, but that to create some type of container where he temporarily feels the pain or suffering that he's creating for others and right. what he's done, and that that can actually be done from a place of unconditional positive regard. Yeah. And so the two things that stand out is being able to make contact with that inner plant in him that like actually answered those questions. Mm -hmm. And then two, the wherewithal to um, make him wait that hour and be in that feeling. And then also keeping your word because I too am constructed in a way that even if someone were to do something egregious like that to me, if I had given them my word on the phone, I would have felt incomplete until I paid them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was profound. And that is this, that's the same thing that comes up when these uncomfortable feelings show up, the triggers show up. We can easily choose, you know, I'm just going to avoid this energy, this emotion, because it sucks, or having a process to go through to the source of it can see where we created some ridiculous beliefs about ourselves. That helped me release that 16-year-old, like, wow, I was cut from the basketball team, like, I'm an outcast, right? And that I don't belong and all these things. And so ironically, you know, we knew two people when we moved to Austin, you know, I knew like one couple. And now it's been this like tremendous community that, you know, is interwoven with just so many freaking Jedis and superheroes modern day that, um, you know, it's like, I can feel that like I pulled that weed and planted deeper seeds of truth, you know? And, and so that's why this type of work has so many different profound results in different areas of life, depending on what people are going through, whether it's, you know, money issues to relationship issues to, to health, you know, it's, it's amazing the results that people get from this. And it goes back to how profound it is, what we believe, right? Right. And what our younger selves believed and how that keeps showing up in our lives, right? So uh, another example, come full circle with my father, like I'll never forget the call I got from him when he 
as soon as he called me and I pick up the phone, I could tell something was off, something was wrong. And he said, I just left the doctor's office and got some bad news. They told me I have stage four lung cancer and they gave me four months to live. And I paused, took a deep breath and chose my words wisely. I said, dad, do you wanna beat this? Do you wanna live? And he said, you're damn right I do. I said, good, then don't listen to a word those doctors said. We're gonna get you on everything that's already curing cancer. The Gerson Institute, they've been doing it for, they're in Mexico now because they've been curing so much cancer that <laughs> they've been banned from the US pretty much because uh, curing cancer doesn't go well with pharmaceutical companies and such and such. But that, instead of going down that rabbit hole, um, the important thing was that he wanted to beat this. We got him an infrared sauna. We got him on juicing. We got him, he finally quit smoking to cut out the things that were his habits that were causing this. And then he became the ultimate biohacker. You know, he was like, I taught him how to do coffee enemas and the Garrison Institute protocol, cutting out the things that, that cause cancer, bringing in more of the things that, that heal it, that create vitality in your body. And so literally I remember getting calls from my brother and he'd be like, hey, <clears throat> dad is just got a CAT scan and he's cancer free. And I was like thinking, man, if my dad had listened to that doctor and believed that man in the white suit, because he has all these credentials, he might've only lived four months. Yeah, I can feel that my eyes are starting to water and that I'm close to crying because I'm feeling into um, someone very close to me. Their parent was diagnosed with um, brain cancer and he was told that he would have six months to live. And my friend watched him like abandon his body yeah. in a way where like he stopped eating because he believed that it was hopeless and that um, he thought that he would pass soon, but that she watched his body being like, no. And, you know, it, it went on for months. Now uh, for a huge additive of compassion, a function of his cancer was that he lost his cognition in a way where um, she couldn't really engage him mm. to, to do anything. But that the, it's like once the words were spoken and the spell was casted, um, that was the trigger that led to the loss of the function of the right. cognition. Because when he went in for the first thing, his cognition had not been lost. And then I had a friend recently um, have a severe spinal cord injury. And again, was told by the doctors, um, no hope. And so he chose to be taken off of life support and he passed. Mm -hmm. And then there's this like almost religious feeling act of um, 
sinning as a devotee of the of the Western religion to even question that there's uh, anything wrong happening there. And yet in the same way that you could feel that by the way your daughter was crying, that like, no, if I listen to the, mm-hmm. to the authentic feeling in me, there's something in me that says, no, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. That um, like the quote that comes to mind when I feel into doctors, because they're genuinely on the most part, great people who are trying to help people. Right. But the quote that comes to mind is, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Right. And that there's something in me that like, um, you know, we talked about rage, but I could feel that there was a rage in me when I was in the hospital, in the waiting room. Like, and that the rage went both ways. And that there was rage towards the doctors. There was also rage towards um, all of my friends who were mourning in a way where they believed that our friend who was choosing to let himself die was making the wrong choice because there was hope. And that a part of the rage that I had towards my friends who were like holding on to that hope is it's um, like we have such a fear of death and a lack of faith about any type of meaningful continuation after death where like it's the living who suffer and that like we were asking him through our hope, like, yeah, just do a paradigm changing miracle on yourself by having to go through the arduous process of like reconnecting your top vertebrae to the rest of your spine so that we don't have to feel you being lost and it's complicated and it's nuanced but that there's such an interesting zeitgeistual tension between um like what's allowed to be said in the public square and then what some of the superheroes are doing outside of the public square and they want to bring it to the public square, but that the tone of the public square is like, if we were to talk about that cancer is something that arises from a chronic repression of emotions Mm -hmm. over the course of tens of twenties of years, and that there are observable things that you can do that can, um, heal it because it's not a function of your brokenness. It's not genetically predetermined. It is actually a accumulating engine light to your consciousness. Yeah. You're, you would be canceled. Like, like your digital image would be murdered, you know, like, uh, before Elon went and got Twitter, like you would have been removed from Twitter. Right. And that there was this, like this was made most explicitly obvious during COVID. And it's like, it seems like the best that we can do given the current situation, unless we want to be like a martyr, is to um, offer it to whoever we are in physical contact with who wants that type of help and that hopefully it'll grow and grow to the point where it overtakes what's happening in the town square 
because there's like, it's on Netflix and I think it's on YouTube, but there's a story with Gabor Mate and MDMA assisted psychotherapy yeah. where there was a dude who had stage four cancer and he had done everything that he was supposed to do and it wasn't relieving itself. He did, if I'm remembering correctly, he did one session with Gabor. Again, imagine the fortune to have Gabor Mate be the dude mm -hmm. who sits for you while you do MDMA-assisted right. psychotherapy, but that Mate did it with him and uh, they did a follow-up in about four months. And of course, Mate was working with him outside of that one time, but he only did MDMA once, uh, full remission. Wow. And that uh, there's even uh, westernized uh, gaslighting spell for that and it's called spontaneous remission right where built into the word is the complete absence of um any type of measurable and reproducible cause and effect right it's crazy yeah i mean for my dad specifically it was and how long ago was this phone call he smoked so this was uh a decade ago Wow. Yeah. And he was a smoker, but he had quit off and on, you know? And so <laughs> I had only seen him cry once when my grandpa, his father died. And that was the first time I saw tears from my dad. And I'll never forget that because as young as I was, I asked him, I said, dad, what do you miss most about grandpa? And I'm so glad I asked him that because he told me, I just miss being able to call him up and just check in and just shoot the crap, you know, and like see how he's doing, talk football, like that check-in, that like just knowing I got you, I'm here, that love, that's how they showed it then you know and so i'm so glad i asked him that because i made it a point to always call my dad every week or vice mm. versa and we'd have these check-ins and you know he'd be barking about the seahawks losing and and maybe i could just add a little vibration razor conversation to it and and those moments seem trivial but they were very monumental to me because he smoked because he couldn't feel grief. Chinese medicine, we know, lungs associated with grief. And so that turning from four months into this journey of him going, you know, inward to all these upgrading all these things in his life to release the habits that were creating the cancer was monumental because I remember, you know, I get a call from my brother and he'd be like, man, dad's in the hospital again. Um, I said, how bad is it? And, and I'd fly out, roll up my sleeves, literally set an intention right before I go into this low vibrational building, the hospital. Right. And I'm, just going to bring some joy. That's it. I'm just going to bring like Patch Adams rolling in there, you know, great movie, right? Like, Because otherwise it's so easy to succumb to the freaking zombie energy of these places. So I go in there, I'm like, 
all right, doc, what do we got to do to get him out of here? Like, can I have him walk three laps around the, you know, the floor and we'll get a couple things signed off and get him out of here? He's like, well, yeah, if you can do that and this and the other thing. And so it's like, sound good, dad. And here I am helping my dad. He's like six, five, like he was my hero growing up, you know, and on a walker, just like step by step all the way around three laps around this, this floor and get everything checked off. And we get him out of there and over to the park where he gets to lay down, get some vitamin D and ground. And I just remember every, like he had this like half smile, right? It was like a, his left lips would curl up towards his ears. And that smile, I just got to be fully present for all those moments to anchor those in in vivid HD. Cause I knew I only had so much time with him left. And what was beautiful about that is, you know, I lost my mom when I was 10. So I didn't know what to make of that then. But now I have the opportunity to share everything on my heart with my dad, who at one time, there wasn't a lot of I love yous. There wasn't a lot of, you know, hugs, you know, it, it took like my sister coming into the world to kind of open all of our hearts and allow us to really reach a new level of showing affection and love. And so I'm so glad that I had those moments because I got the call one time and he was at home still and they had nurses over and um, I flew out as soon as I could. And, and I remember walking in and seeing him and I knew I wasn't there to save him this time. I rolled down my sleeves and recognized like, man, his body is in so much pain. Like, it's just so frail. Like, it's so hard seeing him like that. And shortly after, a friend of ours is playing this guitar song for us called Let It Flow that he wrote. And I had my hand on my dad's shoulder. And while I listened to that song, I cried my face off and let myself be seen more than I ever had before, like in a deep, ugly cry. Like snot, tears flowing, howling. And I found so much gold in the depths of grief of getting to show through liquid emotion, tears, how much I love my father and for him to get to witness that wow. and get to see that what grief looks like that he wasn't able to feel before. And it was a, a really pivotal moment for me of um, deep diving, you know, even deeper into all these emotions that we call bad and haven't been taught how to feel. And so it wasn't long after that. I knew we were, it was close to time and I held his hand and I told him, we huddled around him and I said, dad, we love you so much. Like we are always gonna be with you and where you're going is so peaceful. 
It's so beautiful. There's no need to fight anymore. I knew he was holding on by a thread just for us. After those words, he took his last breath. And I felt his life leave his body. And it was one of those moments that was truly a gift to get to be with him all the way to the end. And I can feel that one of the things that's arising for me from listening to this one is uh, that is a testament. You know, it's not a story. I think that's a testament. And that one of the things that I can feel from the part of the body of the spiritual community that I can make contact with, the pulse of that part of the body, what I can feel is that we don't realize it, but all of us are trying to do the work so that we can actually walk our parents home. But we're trying to, to do everything else but that. You know, that we're trying to start the business, find the love, heal our inner child, all those things. While most people are uh, like, one of the mantras of the spiritual community, at least the part that I can see, is a implicit agreement with Ram Dass's quote that will actually get quoted a bunch for the next four or five weeks because of the time of the year that we're in, which is if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your parents. Yeah, I literally said that yesterday. And that implied in that quote is that it is that the type of experience that you had is not available to the spiritual person. And that at least that's the way I see most people repost it and reuse it is almost like a justification for their triggers that they have with their parents. And that one of the things that I'm, that like a vision that I saw while you were sharing that story is like, I'll know that I have shown up to my part of this dance if I can walk my parents to their death in a way that, um, helps them die in peace mm -hmm. and that I can feel I am far from that task right now, if I'm being honest with myself. Mm -hmm. And the full circle here that I'm at least feeling is that um, <clears throat> what I would say is all of us have complex PTSD. And I, again, I think the right way to think about it is gradual interpersonal trauma. And that it's um, all of the experiences that you've learned where whatever your authentic expression was needed to be shunted, you know, yeah. and that we all have a slow accumulation of many of those type of moments. And that it happened with our parents. And that... Um, maybe like the uh, graduation, but that feels like the wrong metaphor. It feels like the image that I'm seeing is like a bunch of Japanese cherry blossoms blowing through a park and like you're just alone and you can feel like I did it. And that I did it is um, I was able to walk my parents home. Yeah. 
One of the questions that arises for me is um, that first question that you got to ask your dad when he first got the call about cancer was, um, do you want to live? Mm-hmm. You know, and his answer being yes. Uh, have you experienced anyone close to you where, uh, whether or not it was explicit, it was at least implicit that their answer to that was no? I have not. Damn. Because uh, the, there are people yeah. that I'm very close to who um, I have yet to be able to enter into that type of resonant presence that you were able to do with the hacker where you're able to mm-hmm. bypass their script and their story and make contact with the human whose answer would always be yes. Right. Um, but that I have some people in my life who their current answer to that question is no. Mm-hmm. And that uh, I don't know how I currently orient to it is, um, well, whenever they want to say yes, I'll be there to meet them. But I do feel like it's kind of a cop-out you know, that mm-hmm. there's a, there's the adage, you can't drag anyone to the altar, right. you know, and amen. But also there's this feeling of, if you're a nutritionist and that's your vocation and you've watched people transform through changing the way that they eat and you know what works, mm-hmm. if your mother or your father or whatever is um, sick because of a nutritional problem, and that that's your vocation. I don't know where the line is between um, you can't drag anyone to the altar and also like because of my competence, I feel like I'm more responsible than average and that I feel like I'm somehow skirting uncomfortable conversations. And so I would just love to hear what comes up for you. What, can you share more about skirting uncomfortable conversations? It's another word for that for you. Avoiding. Yeah. So one, meeting people where they're at. And it reminds me of a Alan Watts quote. You know, Alan Watts actually used, married people. Did you know that? Like he got married or they no, was a he priest? used to, he yeah, was yeah. the... No, I didn't know the, that. The, he would ordain and, and marry couples for quite some time. But there was something really important that he would ask both partners. And I feel like this is relevant to you and where you're at. He would ask each of them, is there anything that you want to change about your partner? And if either of them <laughs> said yes, he would not marry them. Wow, that is fucking incredible. Yeah. So I share that for a lot of reasons. But one is if, you know, someone's at that place in their life and they don't want to, you know, go on, carry on, right? It's like, can you meet them from a place of compassion? I would even choose compassion over empathy. You know, it's mm-hmm. like meeting them exactly where they're at, their experience, not needing to fix them, you know, but really just being with them in that moment, knowing that this is all temporary, right? And so you can always offer the greatest gift, your love, your presence. Yeah. Your, and, and so 
hopefully, we would hope that that's a temporary experience for them that they don't want to go on, right? But a lot of people go through this, especially during the holidays, ironically, you know? And so what's fascinating to tie everything kind of full circle here is that after my dad had passed, I was called to a medicine journey with some friends here in Austin. And it's a very unique journey. I won't get into it much, but it's a mix of different medicines. And you actually don't know what you're taking. I think I know the container that you're talking about. Yeah. And so basically it's a, it's a big trust fall. But for me, I just needed to meet the shaman that were, that were sharing the medicine. And I knew instantly that it was a yes for me. And so, um, I was called to it. I showed up and what happened that night was so profound. It still blows my mind and opens my heart because how long after your dad passing, did you do this? This, this was more recently. So this was a year and a half ago that, that I joined this ceremony and a friend. Be how many years after your dad passed? Uh, about seven years. Yeah. So one of our friends in the ceremony, and this is what's unique about this journey too, is that instead of ayahuasca where you're supposed to be in your own space, yeah. you know, not interject in other people, this is the invitation to co-create, to communicate. To, so everybody, we're at this moment where everyone's taking turns basically it was like this organic circle that opened and everybody's deep in the medicine and some people are sharing you know a friend just belted out this incredible song about trust right and it was like this profound performance and then someone's playing drums another guy's you know um brought his flute and so it was like this really beautiful orchestration and then all of a sudden everyone's looking at me like it's my turn to entertain and I'm not in that place. Mm -hmm. I'm like feeling some anxiety in my belly. I'm just feeling really deep in this medicine. And so I resisted and didn't allow for that expression. And my, a friend of mine came over in front of everyone and said, you, have a five-year-old that wants permission to play full out and he's feeling reserved and I felt super embarrassed first and then it was literally like feeling these neural pathways open up and it showed me the genius of my five-year-old again like the same guy that was creating biker gangs in a little town, you know, in tree forts and we were the scorpions, right? This, and, uh, and this just imagination and, and free expression that was shunned when my dad's anger was pointed at me. And he never hit us, but it was so fierce that it was, you know, enough to make me reserved and like want to kind of hide behind mom's legs and like peek out, right? 
So he literally, my friend calling me out, like helped me recognize that. And later on, and oh, so then I gave my five-year-old permission and I was freaking doing the hanky-panky dance and all kinds of cartwheels and like flossing with a scarf I had and just ridiculous, <laughs> right? Like, like let him take over, which was amazing. And so it was this liberating moment, but I knew there was more to that. So later on in the night, I went and asked that friend. I said, said listen, I appreciate you calling me out and, and sharing what you see. Is there anything else that you see? Because that's what I'm here for. And he said, let's take a walk. And so we, we went for a walk. This is really late in the night now. So we, we're up in this spot laying down. And all of a sudden, he starts going into this channeling mode. And it's really bizarre because it's kind of like this creepy old man comes online. Wow. And I've never seen a man channel yet. I've only seen fascinating women channel. And it's and interesting. It's so like an old man. Once I could get past the kind of like eerie character that's like channeling this through, I recognized and he shared that it was my dad. And my dad had an important message for me. He said, I couldn't stop it, the anger. He apologized. He mm -hmm. said he was so sorry because he tried everything to not let it go at us kids, but he couldn't stop it. And in that, I could literally follow the thread of that anger, that energy that had just been passed on for from his dad, his dad and generations. And I had already forgiven him and got to even a deeper layer of that, but there was more. He said, I left something for you in your garden. And I'm thinking, my garden here at our home in Texas? And he said, you'll, you'll know when you find it because it doesn't belong in the garden and it's under the red. And I'm thinking, what? And meanwhile, this is channeled by, right, I'll find it in the garden. <laughs> and I'm like, what is God? And so I'm, you know, blown away. And, and he said, when you find it, allow your five-year-old to fully express anything he needs to, to me. I'll meet you there. I'm tripping out and I couldn't wait. The next morning, you know, we had our closing ceremony and integration circle. And then I raced home and said hi to the fam and went right out to the garden. And I'm like, am I crazy? Like, what am I going to find out here? And there was only one thing that was red in the garden, one little shriveled up last of the red bell peppers that was on this vine. And under that, I'm like swiping away these leaves. And sure enough, I find this beautiful seashell, like Fibonacci sequence, gorgeous seashell in the middle of the garden. And I'm, smiling ear to ear my dad knows how much i love the ocean like 
I don't know how he did this, but I'm following suit and I let my five-year-old felt my dad's presence and I let my five-year-old express what he couldn't then. Yeah. And just didn't care if my neighbors heard or anything, just like, I'm not your anger punching bag. I don't deserve this. F you all, whatever needed to come out, I allowed him to fully express that. And I felt my dad's spirit ascend even higher. I felt him liberated by me finally feeling that and expressing that. We can't outrun our emotions. They're meant to be felt. And in that is extreme liberation, freedom, and even healing for our forefathers, mothers, ancestors. It was profound. There's a couple of things there. One, I mean, I'm not going to talk about all the fucking incredible, like, but the things that I see uh, that really resonate with me is one is um, that's something that I know that I need to hear from my dad that I probably won't get to. And um, I can feel how important that will be for a lot of people. The other thing is that um, I know we don't have time to get into it, but a big part of this like self-initiatory container that I feel that I'm in is um, integrating that I now actually believe in reincarnation. So my entire life, never. Um, I've never resonated with it. It's it's an idea that I could hold intellectually, but um, there's a angry, atheistic part of me that's like all of these stories are just stories that we tell ourselves to try to contend with the absurd situation that we are actually in and that if we didn't tell stories that gave us hope, we would scream until we died on the spot, you know? And I recently have become familiar with the research out of the University of Virginia by um, two generations of doctors over 50 years of them collecting reports of children who remember having a past life. They have over 3,000 case studies that they have tested and verified. And the way that they go about trying to verify it is they will go interview the child uh, then they'll go back to their like labs and they'll find everything they can out about who the child claims to be. They then come up with a bunch of questions and some are multiple choice and some are just like you have to actually just know the answer. They then tell those questions to the parents. The parents don't know the answers. So the parents have to ask the children and they will be present for that. And the children have to get a certain amount right in order for it to be reported. Over 3,000 cases. And uh, the book for people who are interested is Life Before Life. And one of the things that they find is that um, the average time between lives is about 80 to 120 years. All of these reported past lives are not what you find in the spiritual community where everyone's a king and everyone's, you know, like a witch or a pharaoh or whatever. All these people were actual people who lived, you know, like I think the most... um, high status life that I've read so far as someone in a past life, they were an actor and they, but some of them, the reincarnated lives are um, like one woman's daughter 
reported that her past life was her mom's grandfather. And she answered all these questions right. And that there was like a guilt for the way the grandfather died, that like his guilt for not having kept his word, like brought him back into life. And that if you take what the Tibetan Buddhists believe about what happens when you die is that you enter into these stages that are called bardos, Mm -hmm. where you have the opportunity, if you're able to not attach, that you like it affects what quality reincarnation you get. And that there was something that intuitively felt like it made sense that uh, you were able to, from this lens, from this view, participate with your father's attachments while he was in the bardo space Mm -hmm. in a way where he was able to like, oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating because there's a point when, you know, we think about how much we fear death as a human, but think about how crazy, scary, exciting, and all the things of going from energy, soul, into human form again. That courageous move somewhere in that experience of moving from energy into this physical realm we choose to forget so that we can remember again. And I would argue that the children I've seen, including mine, being born now, are choosing to forget less. And so knowing more already coming in. And like you're mentioning these, they can already remember some of their past lives or experiences from before. And one of, I wish I remembered whose quote this was, but a very wise sage once said, was asked, what is reality? And his answer was, reality is that which never changes. Mm fascinating because in this human experience everything seems to change and so there's something so much more Mm. and i've had the privilege of getting to experience micro doses of that more by being so close to death of the ones that i love and i see it as a gift just like all of my traumas they're gifts their treasure chests to be unlocked and to be, to know thyself. Motherfucking Charles Clay. (laughs) Thank you uh, for coming on. I know that you got to get going. This was absolutely incredible, poignant, perfect, great podcast to be the one that I come back out of into. Mm -hmm. And thank you, brother. Absolutely. And for those of you that haven't gotten your free gift yet of Sovereign Chi from the last podcast, be sure to try that out. 
It is my favorite practice for coming into alignment when you're feeling off for good morning rituals. It's a combination of visualization, movement, and meditation that you know it's working when it feels really good and allowing yourself to fill up with your own sovereign chi. And so that's my gift to all the, the viewers. It's easy to get charlesclay.coach. Just go to the bottom, um, enroll in newsletter, and you'll receive that guided gift. And uh, look forward to hearing how it works for you guys. It's been such an honor. And is there anything else that you'd like to point people to if they want to learn more or, you know? Yeah. So charlesclay.coach has... Um, all my offerings, including more about the inner peace process. So for anyone listening, feel free to reach out. Um, that's one of the lessons, initiations I had to go through was having the courage to ask for help when I needed it. And they can mm -hmm. DM you on Instagram as yes. long as you haven't posted porn recently. That'll <laughs> be a correct. sign. That, okay. Yeah. Then Perfect. they'll know it's me. There's yeah. no porn on there. Uh, cool. Charlesclay.coach on Instagram as well happy to connect and um, share these gifts. And it's truly an honor, brother. I always love our deep dives. Likewise. Yeah. Thank Until you so next much. Time.